So let's start meditating, and I'd like to get everybody standing. So please stand. You know, in our our classic Theravadan tradition, we don't have um, instructions on grounding. And I've found learning how to ground to be an invaluable way to help get a tremendous benefit out of the formal sitting practices. So just let your feet spread out and allow the points in the ball of your feet to open up. And using imagination, just feel connected to the floor and allow the feeling of connection to the floor to go beneath the foundations into the earth, beneath the freezing, into the cool, to the temperate, into the warmth of the earth. And as we feel our connection with the earth, just notice how that supports a body relaxing. So what we're interested in is to establish alignment, to allow the spine to elongate, to establish balance and to continue to relax. When we're relaxed, attention is much more able to settle, to connect, to feel our whole body. Just like when we have Pancakes that are soft, they absorb the maple syrup. And when they're too tough, the maple syrup rolls off the top of them. So with attention resting in the body, relaxed, aligned, balanced. Just noticing the quality of attention. Noticing the objects of attention and noticing the reaction to objects in attention or wanting or not wanting or resisting. And any time you notice the body starts to tense, 
that's a really good indication to pay more attention and invite relaxation. Invitation to relax is not a magic wand. but an intention. And in the same kind of clarity, with the same kind of interest, in the same kind of stillness and precision, the next whole meditation practice is to change posture and to be attentive, exquisitely attentive and interested to the sensations, to the reaction to the sensations, as we shift from standing into sitting. Just taking a moment as we change postures to notice the change. And taking a, a few moments just to see that your spine is in the right relationship. That the top of your hips are slightly forward of your sitting bones. Your spine is elongated. And your body is relaxed. Now wherever you normally pay attention, wherever you normally allow your attention to rest, That is welcome. Remember, part of meditation is developing and sustaining a relaxed and focused attention. And part of that is to remember and to bring our attention back. So the bringing our attention back is a part of the meditation muscle of our mind we are developing. It's not a mistake. It's a strengthening. And so in these next 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, we sit quietly with whatever meditation object we're used to. Remembering that when we bring our attention back, that that too is part of meditation.
So uh, I have an interesting task I set myself up for tonight, and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to manage it, but we will see. Um, I wanted to talk about the Eightfold Path. But what I wanted to do tonight was talk about the Eightfold Path in relationship to the context that it was given in, the context that we're living in, and how that relates to uh, the American dream that is our contemporary cultural milieu. Let's see how this goes, whether this flies or flops. But um, So I don't know if I'm the only one in this room who has a sense that we're at a turning point in our time, you know? in our culture. And so, you know, certainly we're facing uh, quite a number of concerns, you know, within city districts, within state districts, within nation districts, with globally. And and each of these has quite huge ramifications, you know. And so, you know, when I look at some of the stuff that we're dealing with, You know, my brother told me last week, he said that currently in in developed countries, obesity is um, number one cause of death over, over anything. It's like, what on earth is going on, you know? It's just incredible. And then today I was listening to a, a recording and they were saying that they have a way of measuring narcissism. <laughs> and since they've been measuring narcissism, we are higher on the narcissistic Richter scale than we have ever been. <laughs> and then we look at, you know, the economic situation where I think in the last year or so, 97% of the wealth went to 7% of the population. You know, we have wars which are not being fought because of, you know, national security, but for other political reasons to secure oil fields, to fuel the economy. We've got global crises that are noticeable by the drought, the freeze, the fire, the hurricanes, the, you know, water issues. And so we've got, you know, quite a lot of stuff that's like noticeable. But on the other side, we've got other things that are happening, you know, certainly in terms of social justice, I would say that in every single area we have huge progress that we still need to make in terms of making it clear that people of color and the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community and um, women and every other group of people who have been marginalized have the right to be, have the right to express, have the right to love, have the right to have their basic needs met and to be honored as human beings. So we have progress to make, but if we look at where we were in the 1960s, there has been a lot of development in these areas. When we look at um, 
child mortality, it has decreased uh, across the world. And when we look at global links between nations, they have increased. Okay, so when we talk about some stuff, obviously we're facing tremendous challenges, and there have been some places where we have made quite a lot of progress. All right. So, you know, I've been listening to, during the election, I was listening to President Obama and giving some of his, his speeches, and, you know, he kept on referring back to the American dream, you know, and, you know, what a fabulous country we are because people are still able to realize the American dream. And I was trying to get my mind around, well, what is the American dream, you know? And so, you know, he was saying the American dream is, you know, that, that every family has the right, if they work hard enough, to earn enough money so that they can buy their own house, they can put their kids through college, they can have health care, they can retire, and that their kids can have a kind of better uh, life than they had. That's the American dream, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, wow. <laughs> you know, this dream does not take into account that the choices that I might make might influence my neighbor or might influence the city or might influence other people and how they are able to sustain their life. It doesn't take into account anything that allows us to become sustainable. It doesn't take into account the fact that our happiness is actually not ultimately connected to material possessions. It doesn't take into account, you know, the vital role that consciousness is playing in our evolution. It's like, I think we need a new American dream, you know, honestly. I think we need a new American dream. So, when we look at, you know, practice, the meditation practice, when we look at meditation practice has in it like a sense that we are able to be free from fear, from addiction, from despair, from discrimination, from anger, from ignorance, that that actually is the result of practice. And that practice result is independent if we are wealthy, if we are successful, if we are well-known, if we are well-liked, if we have all of the things that we are supposed to have to fit into the American dream. You know, whether we do or we don't, we can still practice in a way where we can experience these kinds of freedoms. So, you know, to me, there's a, a compelling and urgent kind of sense that our consciousness, our evolution and our practice is not just a kind of nice idea, but it's like, you know, the bridging place that may tip things in a direction towards what will be or what can be a life that is much more sustainable. You know, it's not just like a nice way to relax, you know, 
it actually has within it the potential for certain kinds of freedom that can genuinely make a difference in our own sense of happiness as well as happiness of the people around us and our capacity to grow and develop communities that support this in kind of kinship networks that increase. All right? Now, let me go back into the Eightfold Path and talk a little bit about the context that it was first delivered in and talk about the context that we are now and then see if I might talk about the Eightfold Path in terms of where it has been, where it can be, and where we might want to go with it, see what this looks like. All right? So when we, we talk about the society that the Buddha was living in, you know, 2,600 years ago. It was a very strict, traditional, hierarchical society, okay? And without wanting to use adjectives in a way which is judgmental, you know, to value or devalue, but just to describe, you know, one of the characteristics of a traditional society is that there's a lot of hierarchy. And in a hierarchical society, there's a tremendous sense of loyalty and honor and valor and courage and wanting to protect the leadership. And within a hierarchy of traditional society, you know, there was no sense of a person being an individual entity separate from their clan or their village or their trade or their context. And so people were very strongly born into an embedded sense of who they were. And so their station in life, their career in life, who they married in life was related to their, who, where they were born. Okay? And with very, very few exceptions, that was sort of like the norm, that was the standard. In our modern Oh, and also, you know, the sense of justice. You know, certainly they had a sense of justice, but justice was all directly related to your position in life rather than to a kind of justice that was applicable to everyone. So people who had power and people who had money and people who had privilege had different laws that they had to obey than everybody else. Now, certainly we can see that some of that goes on today too. But generally speaking, the laws are a little bit more... um, the laws, at least, are geared that they're supposed to be meant for everybody. Whether that actually pans out is a different story. So then there was a whole shift into a time of the modern era. And the modern era was characterized by industrialization and a shift from into reason, where reason became the religion of the day. You know, everything that was logical became what was worshipped. And as the industrial society took on more and more significance and the family structure moved out of the kind of extended family and the village into, you know, people moved to cities to work and then the nuclear family took on much more significance, then people's relationship began to be much less a kind of embedded experience and much more the individual, the individual person, the individual family unit was operational as like really had a huge amount of impact. And with the industrialization and the moving to the cities and the increase of reason, you know, the things that had transcendent values were kind of turned into senseless, useless, brute matter. Okay. So what used to have sacred implications just became useless or senseless, you know? It didn't have a lot of spiritual implications to it. 
And alongside this kind of shift to a modern era, there became a kind of endemic um, experience of alienation, isolation, emptiness, despair that was present not only in people who were struggling economically, but of the educated and the affluent as well. And with a lack of sense of purpose and a lack of sense of, you know, a reason why we're doing all of this, then came with it, like, you know, a lot of, of increase in the use of, of drugs and the use of promiscuous sex and the use of, of um, power, acquisition of possession of material goods without any real sense of purpose of why we're doing this, just because as a way of, of distracting oneself from the kind of pervasive loneliness, alienation, and emptiness that there was to be experienced. Now, this emptiness is not the Buddhist emptiness that we're trying to realize. This is the emptiness of like no sense of warmth or connection, no sense of purpose, no sense of vitality, okay? But alongside, you know, this um, modern era, there was also, you know, a huge emphasis on the importance of questioning authority. So, you know, the, the leader and the spiritual elders were very much under the scrutiny of whether or not they were congruent with the values that they were ascribing. And also that came in this time was is that individuals had a sense of being able to use personal will to change their position it for themselves in their life, as well as to change what was going on around them, okay? And so um, this all led to a kind of different context that we were living in. In addition to the shift of the sense of uh, questioning authority, then also what came with it was an interest in justice. And so uh, it shifted, it started shifting where people of privilege and power and aristocratic uh, lineages had different laws that they had to follow to it being more that laws of the land were developed and everyone was meant to be uh, having to follow them. And then also during the modern era, there was more an interest in in, in, in rights for people who, in other circumstances, were very much marginalized. So even in the scriptures of the Buddha, you know, he talks about there are correct ways of dealing with slaves. And in a modern era, it's like, you know, that's just totally unacceptable. So we have slaves now under other definitions, but not the classical definition where a person has direct ownership over another person and has the decision-making ability of what they do with them. We, we're a little bit more sneaky on how we create slaves now. You know, it's not so obvious. Then we go into a postmodern society. And in a postmodern society, we're shifting from a kind of reductionistic view that happened in a modern society to much more a holistic view where, you know, we're interested in having spiritual uh, experiences, but not in separating out in the way that we did in a traditional context. So, for example, in a traditional context, it was really um, blatant that something, for example, like spirituality and sexuality were like never the two could meet. Okay, they were just absolutely 
separated. And in a modern society, it's like, well, of course they meet. <laughs> of course you can find, you know, spirituality and sexuality, and you can find, you know, the life force, the vitality, the eros and spirituality. Of course they meet. And so there's an interest in, in bringing together the transcendent experiences into the imminence of our own personal direct experience in the world. And that is for us, it's like, that's obvious, it's natural. It's like where our hearts are longing to go. It's like what we want to see, what we want to experience, you know. So our culture shifted from a traditional society to a modern society to a postmodern society. And one of the geniuses of some of the things that's come through the postmodern society is some of the maps that are available today that, you know, haven't been available. You know, we've got, you know, understanding of psychotherapy in the psychodynamic world, which has, uh, I feel, a huge a lot of, of, of value to offer. You know, I really appreciate some of the work that Ken Wilber has done to map out stages of consciousness. And one of the things that he has delineated is, is, is that there are different stages of development. So as an adult, there are different stages of conscious development. Now, I understand that in terms of like when we look at childhood development, there's a stage, and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a certain age where a kid, if you take a tall glass, if you take this, okay, that's tall and thin, and then you take a fat glass that's short and wide, and you fill them up with the water, and they're exactly the same volume of the water, okay? So at a certain age, if you take this tall thing and you pour it into the short one, and you pour it back and forth, the little kid will look at that and say, there's more in this one. There's more in the tall one. They cannot conceptually do it that the volume is the same because the association is is that tall has more, okay? And you can, you can have a video of them pouring the water back and forth from one glass to the other glass and it's exactly filling the top of the glass and every time they get to the top of this one, the little kid will say, there's more in this one. And then you show this same video to that kid a year or two later and they're mortified that they were so dumb that they couldn't figure out that the volume of water was the same because the shapes were different. Well, this is a really good metaphor for developmentally we are at different stages. And so, you know, sometimes we get really crabby because people are what we think stuck in a fundamentalist phase. And if we could only give them the right ideas, then they would shift out of that stage and join us where we're at, wherever that is. Okay. And yet what we forget is, is that stages of development is not about information, it's about consciousness. And that the way we move from one stage of development to another stage of development is through development of consciousness, not acquisition of information. And so, you know, I am in the same position. It's like, you know, here we are in this world. It's like, what on earth do we need to do to move from where we are to where we need to go? You know, it's like, you know, how, where, where do we start, you know? But 
what we need to remember is, is that everybody is at a stage appropriate level for where they're at. Okay? Now, in my view of things, it's like, you know, I would like the people who have the most development to be the ones who are making policy. Because the ones who are the most developed have the capacity to include everybody. But the ones who are in a lesser developed state think that their thing is the right way and everybody else should be, what, I don't know what, boxed in, caged up, locked up, I don't know what they think. But it's not the same kind of big view, big vision that is inclusive of everybody wherever they're at. Okay. So here we are in a world that has moved from a traditional to a modern to a postmodern. And in our postmodern world, we have maps that actually develop or have a delineated stage of consciousness and have expressed that there are, there are certain things that we cannot, through information, be able to shift. It's through consciousness. And Ken Wilber has done a magnificent job of describing this process, describing maps, labeling the different stages, and you know, talking about all of that. But this too is something that very, very few people actually get. That as an adult, there are different stages of consciousness. And when we are at a different stage, we view the world through that particular lens. And that's exactly right. Like a kid. A kid is not going to be able to see that this one and the fat one are the same. Because developmentally, their brains cannot do that. And then when they get to the next level, they can. It's not a problem. So we get frustrated because we think that our bright ideas, if we are able to communicate them articulately enough... We're going to be able to help shift the person from being able to see that this is the tall one and the big one to recognizing they're the same. And it's impossible because we're talking about a cognitive development that needs to take place that is not based on information. Okay, so let's go into the Eightfold Path and see what we get when we do that and see what happens when we come out the other side. All right, so what is the Eightfold Path? So, you know, the Eightfold Path talks about right view, right intention, right effort, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness. I really love the idea of changing the word right to connected. That, to me, kind of does it. It's like it really kind of lets my whole system go, yeah, that's the right way of telling that. I have no idea in Pali whether there's any accuracy or not in that. But what I know is in terms of what it conveys is correct. So classically, when we look at connected view, what we're talking about is karma, cause and effect, the benefit of generosity, taking care of one's parents as the kind of mundane right view or connected view where we actually see ourselves in relationship with the world and how it works. When we're looking at super mundane right view, then it has got to be that we understand the Four Noble Truths as an essential 
feature of how we are relating to the world. Okay? When we're looking at connected view in terms of a postmodern application with maps of consciousness, to me, it includes community as a central, pivotal point of our development and an understanding that we cannot change another person through sharing information, but through sharing presence and through fostering the conditions that support their consciousness shifting. When we look at connected intention, classically that includes the intention to renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of harmlessness. The Buddha describes his teaching as running contrary to the way of the world. Where finding happiness is measured not through, in the the world it's measured through seeking power and wealth and professional success and fame and physical strength and military might and political control. You know, that's the way the world says, you know, you get gold stars, you're in, you know. And, you know, I was looking at the some different writings and Bhikkhu Bodhi was saying, what remains as a guiding principle is this, that the attainment of deliverance requires the complete eradication of craving. And progress along the path is accelerated to the extent that one overcomes craving. Breaking free from domination by desire may not be easy, but the difficulty does not abrogate the necessity. Since craving is the origin of dukkha, putting an end to dukkha depends on eliminating craving. And that involves directing the mind to renunciation. It has got to be that in our connected thought and intention, our development to consciousness is a priority. It has got to be in our expression of goodwill that we develop a sense of care and kindness to ourselves, to each other, and to everybody around us. It has got to be in our expression of harmlessness that we begin to wake up to our patterns where we are hurting and harming ourselves, our self-belittling, our self-deprecating, our self-judging, our slandering ourselves, and stop doing that. And find ways in which the way we harm each other, the way we harm the world around us through the choices that we make, through the things that we buy, through the food that we eat, is something that is part of our practice. Through the amount of cleaning solutions that we use, through the kind of paint we choose, through the engines that we get, through the use of fuel that we have, You know, it's like we are not isolated, independent entities that have no relationship with everything else. It's all connected. So when we're interested in non-harming, the whole world ends up coming into view of what that actually looks like. 
When we look at connected effort, classically, there's four efforts. There's the effort to keep what is wholesome. There's the effort to develop and, and perfect what is wholesome. There is the effort to remove what is unwholesome. And there is the effort to keep what is unwholesome from arising in the future. When we look at effort from where we're at now in a postmodern world and where we are now in terms of understanding stages of consciousness, it has got to be that we recognize that our own commitment to practice has got to be important. That we have got to make it a priority to support places that practice is encouraged, where our communities have what they need to engage, to do this work, to grow, to develop, to change out of old habits, to make the shift. You know, when we look at the map of stages of development, there are always going to be people who are at lower stages than us. They need our care and our compassion. There are always going to be people who are at stages that are similar to us. They are our peers, our colleagues. They need our love. And there will always be people who are more advanced than we are. They need our gratitude, our respect, our appreciation, and our support that they can continue to do what they do. We go from connected effort to connected speech. Now, doesn't that sound lovely? Connected speech. So classically, right speech is speaking what is truthful, what supports harmony, what is gentle, what is useful, and what is timely. And I know from my own experience living in a monastery that this was one of the slowest learnings that we developed was how to actually communicate in a way where all of these things were taking place. So as a community of nuns, we are probably exceptionally more perceptive than ordinary people. As a community of celibate women, it's like exponential off the Richter charts how perceptive we can be, okay? But we were like 20 years ahead of ourselves in terms of our capacity to see things as our capacity to communicate them in a way that was actually useful, skillful, timely, and in a way that supported trust rather than caused absolute rupture, chaos, dismantling of the fabric of what we were living with. You know, 20 years ahead of ourselves. It took 20 years to catch up with ourselves that our perceptivity was equal to our capacity to communicate in a way where what we were doing was actually beneficial for the person and for the community. And this didn't come instinctually. It took blood, sweat, and tears. And picking up resources, picking up tools, getting facilitators to help learning. Because it is absolutely not something that we learn in our culture. Yeah. When we look at right action or connected action, again, we have 
the classic description is keeping the precepts. You know, making an affirmation to keep the precept to non-harm, to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from incorrect speech, to refrain from drugs and drink which cause carelessness. But when we look at right action from a postmodern and from maps of consciousness, this is also the action that's needed to build community, the action that is needed to sustain practice, the action that is needed in order that our own consciousness is continuing to develop. I mean, narcissism has got no magic remedy on how to rectify it. And it is endemic. It's everywhere. So the irony of a culture, a society that totally prizes individuality is a deep sense of insecurity and vulnerability that people have where they cannot see their own self-worth and so they are grabbing onto external validation and desperate longing in order to get something that they don't have inside of themselves. For me, right action includes the willingness to engage in understanding that this is part of what we have to deal with and to take the efforts that's needed individually and in our communities so that we can move through this. So I was trying to remember the, um, there's a song and I can't remember how it goes, but it's something like, you know, you have to start with goodness in a person and the goodness in the person develops harmony in the family and the harmony in the family develops something sustaining in the community. And what sustains in the community develops a nation And when there's peace in the nation, then there's peace in the world. Okay? It's like we are past the world of hero leaders. The one on the shining horse with the white glinting sword that's going to come and go voop, voop, and lead us all to freedom. You know, it's up to us to find our capacity to do our inner work, to bond in our families, our communities, with each other, to define kinship networks where we can grow, where we can support, where we can develop. And that is going to be the place in which the policies in our city, in our state, in our nation are going to emerge that supports us moving towards something which is sustainable, which is life-affirming, which has the understanding of the importance of consciousness as part of something that we need to develop. It goes from connected action to connected livelihood, and connected livelihood, again, is engaging in ways of earning a living where there is no harm. We're not engaging in poisons. We're not engaging in arms. We're not engaging in illegal drugs. We're not engaging in the sex trade as part of our way of earning money. And then it goes to right concentration. Now, classically, right concentration is described as the development of the jhanas, the absorptions where the mind 
drops into places or states of consciousness where the hindrances are at bay. Initially, there's applied and sustained thought, and then the thought disappears. And there's just rapture and bliss and joy. And then we move past the sense of rapture and bliss into something that's just much more equanimous. Now, for most modern people, access to the jhanas is not like opening up the refrigerator and getting out a glass of milk. And so what we also need to understand is is that in our contemporary postmodern world, what concentration means is the ability to bring a relaxed and focused attention to what's happening right now. And to do that, whether or not we are super busy or not, I'm doing some work with um, the Innovation Pavilion in Centennial and with a group of entrepreneurs, most of whom have had zero experience meditating. And it's kind of a challenge and it's kind of a curiosity to see if it's possible to get people turned on to the importance of meditation who've got no context for it. And it's like, I'm not telling them to spend an hour meditating. I'm telling them to meditate by feeling what they feel when they pull out their cell phones, when they're walking to the meeting, when they're talking to somebody, okay? So it's not about time out, it's about time with, time in. So as part of my process of developing this curricula for the, for the entrepreneurs, I asked a friend, he said if I needed any books, I said, yeah, I want to get this book, I can't remember the name of the author, it's called Meditation on a New York Minute, Super Calm for the Super Busy. It's a fabulous book, it's absolutely fabulous book. So it's not talking about dropping into the jhanas, it's talking about being relaxed and focused in whatever we're doing. You know, so if you've got gazillion things to do, you're multitasking 10 things, then do it with a relaxed and focused attention. And periodically drop your attention into your feet and pay attention to your breath. Scan your emotions. Let your practice be where you are. When we look at right mindfulness or connected mindfulness, classically, that's the four foundations of mindfulness. That's the ability to pay attention to our body. That's the ability to be able to isolate and locate the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that we're experiencing in the present moment. That's the quality of being able to attend to the objects of our mind without judging ourselves for having them. And that's the ability to relate to the objects of our mind from the framework of, are there hindrances? How is this related to the aggregates? Is this connected to the seven factors of awakening? Can I relate to what's going on in terms of the Four Noble Truths? When we look at that in terms of our world now, it's like present moment, present response. What's happening right now and how am I relating to it? You know? It's a question that we can take wherever we are and whatever we're doing. It is not limited to being in a sangha of people who are practicing. It's not limited to having a particular religious belief. It is not limited 
to place or to time or to context. It's related to intention. The willingness to bring the quality of awareness into what we are doing and to use whatever we are doing to enable, to support our development of consciousness. That we can move through the stages and the states of consciousness so that we too can evolve. Now, Martin Luther King is the 21st of January and legendary, visionary leader is honored. And in his classical speech, one of the things that he said, one part of that speech, I have a dream, he says, we have also come to this hollowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. And now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. And now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. So I took liberties and changed it. We have also come to this hollowed spot to remind America of the first fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of the development of consciousness. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of ignorance to the sunlit path of understanding. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands born out of fear and confusion to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make freedom a reality for all. So what does a new American dream look like and how do we get there? So I offer this for reflection this evening, and I'd like to change and have the next 10 minutes or so be a time for comment and question and feedback. Thank you. Yes, please, Don. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, when you were talking about um, the, the not so much
Don, I think it's an interesting point because, you know, we have the understanding or the wrong understanding that things are static, you know, and the religious right is a thing and that it exists in time and space and has all of these sets of belief, but everything is evolving and things evolve in spite of themselves a lot of the time. And that can be true. That can be true for everything, you know, so there is nothing that's fixed and static. Everything is shifting and changing. And, you know, when the when the conditions get to be a certain thing, then people are in a position where they're having to re-examine, you know, where they're stuck or where their stand is. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is nature, but our vision usually does not include that. You know, we tend to like to fix and locate things because somehow it's more comfortable for us. Yeah. Yes, in the back. So the question about gentle speech, I'm repeating so that on the tape recorder people can hear, because sometimes they get frustrated, they can't hear the questions. Gentle speech, truthful, harmonious, gentle, useful, and timely. So the question about whether Tantra is more applicable in a postmodern era with people in relationships and engaged in sexual relationships and, and how that all works in terms of renunciation. Tantra, as I understand it, is not about sex. Tantra is about working with energy. And in an uh, initiate experience of working with Tantra, you're working with all of the um, like sexual energy as one thing to generate bliss, to stabilize the mind in emptiness, okay? Now, there are certainly, as a monastic, the way they do that would be different than a person who, as a layperson, can actually have intimate relationships. But the point of it is not the engaging in the sexual activity. The point of it is generating the bliss to stabilize the mind in emptiness, all right? So I don't think that is so much applicable to the postmodern world as it is in the understanding of the value of using that energy as part of the process of waking up, would be my take on it. I, I, I didn't mean to uh, limit it to just the area of sex, but having things and energy in terms of... Uh, Having being responsible for things, and, and I, mean, I guess all the things that we encounter in our life. Well, I, you know, my sense is, and you know, I don't know if my sense is shared by other people, but my sense is, is, is that people's inclination towards different styles of practice doesn't have to do so much with the era that we're in as the, like, the kind of aptitude and resonance that we have. So I don't think it's so much a cultural issue as it is a personal inclination issue. Because Tantra existed before the modern era. And 
And uh, an interesting question. Yeah. Other questions? Comments? Things to share? Yes, please. Just a comment that the intention of the right view or whatever is to not be harmed and be respectful. I think that's, for me, it absolutely has to be that I don't always agree on somebody else's point of view of what the right view is. But the, and so I need to be tolerant of not everybody agrees on a certain political point of view or a certain economic uh, idea or a certain degree. You know, you've got a whole world that is in America that we're talking about too, so it's like, it may be irrelevant my spiritual program we can consider America. It's these are spiritual principles. And, but then I have to apply them to life. So I guess I just I have to remind myself to be tolerant of other people's That's a good point. Yeah, tolerance of other people's point of view is really important. I mean, for me, it was a revelation. I don't know when it was for you, but for me, you know, living in community with people. And you realize just how differently people experience and perceive the world. I mean, it's a shock when you first realize it, you know. But it's, you know, that's the reality. People experience and perceive the world absolutely differently. Yeah, yeah. So maybe one more question. Yes, in the back, please. So the question is, is how do you deal with the pain and the hurt and the anger that comes from people who are sociopathic or psychopathic or leaders who are using their power in wrong ways? And um, it's a big question. So in a... Um, like I heard as an example, you know, there's certain countries that believe that, or religious beliefs that have that, for example, if a woman commits adultery, then it's acceptable for her to be stoned to death. Okay? And in this country, people who believe that can live here. But it's not okay for them to do that here. So that we have laws of the land that protect women, so adultery is not condoned but it's not acceptable to stone a woman to death if this is something that she's done. So we have a a political system that recognizes that there are different views, and people are welcome to have their different views, but they're not allowed to act on them. When we're in a situation where that's not the case, where the person is actually stoned to death, and we're having to deal with the kind of what feels like barbaric value system that is in that's not uh, the same as ours. We have work to figure out how to move the politics into a direction that is more congruent with our values. In terms of our own personal experience of the pain and the hurt that we have to deal with when we see things like that. You know, so somebody came up to me this evening and was saying that she'd read an article about a man who kept his son in a cage and starved him to death, okay? It's like, what on earth do you do with that kind of suffering, you know? How do you open to that kind of suffering and move through one's system 
so that one has a place for it to land where there's anything that makes some sense. And these are not small questions. They're not. But what I know from my own personal experience is, is, is that I don't do things to hurt people when I'm feeling well in myself. And that when I've been confused or distressed or distraught or I have been working with my own trauma, then my ability to track my own internal reactions and stuff is much, much less. So my capacity to understand another person's capacity for harming has increased significantly as I've done more work with myself. And I realized some of the places where this stuff comes from. Now, for me, it was a really important and telling experience. There was something that happened for me that was so excruciatingly painful that I totally understood why people become psychopaths. Because I got it that when you are in so much pain and you don't have tools or resources or a way to ground it, your mind can completely twist and distort and you can come up with a reality that is absolutely a twisted reality of the world. And having lived through that, where the consequence of having lived through that much pain was that I got what actually can happen, that you can come out twisted, is that something inside of me felt like, I understand now why some people are like that. You know? They don't have the family. They don't have a community. They don't have the tools. They don't have the ability to deal with the enormous suffering that they have had to live through. And it, it torques their internal perceptions in a way that for us is unacceptable, but for them is a survival mechanism on how to deal with the pain. I don't know if that helps you, but that's what I've done. We need to go because we're past our, our pumpkin hour and we've got to clean up and, and, and get rallied and get out of here so that we're not going to be a pain for our person who's keeping the place open. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.